Introduction to Krylov's Fables by Ivan Andreevich Krylov, selected and translated by C. Fillingham Coxwell, M.D. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ivan Andreevich Krylov was born in Moscow on February 14, 1768. His father, a military officer, found himself at Orenburg during serious events. The poet Pushkin, in his History of Pugachev's Rebellion, says, Fortunately, in the fortress there was a Captain Krylov, a man of decision and prudence. He at once took command of the garrison and made the necessary dispositions. Pugachev swore to hang not only Krylov but all of his family. Thus for a while seemed destined to death the four-year-old boy who later became the famous fabulist. On leaving the army, the father went with his wife and son to Tver, where he became president of the district court of magistrates. The boy's education fell to the share of his mother, who endeavored to encourage him in his lessons by a reward of a few kopecks. The money, as it amassed, being devoted by the child under her direction to small outlays necessary for his own benefit. Her subsequent plan of getting him educated under a French tutor with the neighboring landowner's children did not turn out well, so the child returned to her care. Although she did not know French, she made her son read in that language before her. When the father died, the mother could get no pension, and the boy, then aged eleven, obtained employment in the chancellery where his father had presided. Ivan's work allowed him plenty of time for talking to the common people in streets and squares and for listening to their conversation, and early impressions so gained became the storehouse whence he drew the racy and characteristic dialogues in his fables. But the mother did not slacken her efforts, and the boy occupied himself eagerly and indiscriminately with a trunk full of books which had belonged to his father. In his fifteenth year he composed the words of a comic opera in rhymed verse, the Kofienitsa, the fortune-teller by means of coffee-grounds. Soon afterwards, under untoward stress of circumstances, the mother set forth to St. Petersburg in the hope of securing a pension for herself and a proper position for Ivan. They arrived in the capital in 1783. Everything was very cheap at the time. Thus this poor but admirable mother paid a servant only two roubles a year in wages. The lad had obtained a place at an annual remuneration of twenty-five roubles. Five years later Ivan was left parentless, but as long as he lived the great fabulist could not recall his mother without the deepest emotion. On arriving in St. Petersburg the youth turned his first composition to good account. A foreigner named Britkov, printer and bookseller, as well as musical devotee, bought the Kafienitsa for sixty paper roubles, or rather for their value in certain volumes of Racine and Moliere, which young Krylov preferred to the Voltaire and Crébillon. The great French satirist doubtless influenced him strongly, and he was drawn to the heroes of Greeks and of Rome by Racine, and soon produced a tragedy, Cleopatra. Having submitted this work to the judgment of Dmitrievsky, the famous actor, he called almost every day for the judge's opinion. After several months, Dmitrievsky said that he wished to read the piece with the author, and then explained its grave defects. A second tragedy, Philomena, finished in 1786, had no greater success. After the death of his mother in 1788, 
Krylov entered the public service, but retired in two years, for he was drawn to literary pursuits and aspired to become an editor. He thought that a periodical printed by himself might bring him independence and fame. For several years he thus busied himself with magazines, the printing establishment, and new pieces for the stage. The Soul's Post, issued monthly, was interesting and carried on brightly, but in the course of a year it ceased from lack of public support. However, Krylov continued the printing business for himself and his partners. In 1792 he brought out a new journal, The Spectator, for which a dramatic author named Klushkin helped to supply articles. Throughout his long career Krylov used to recall his association with his colleague pleasurably. When this journal stopped, a new one, the St. Petersburg Mercury, took its place, but only lasted a year. It contained several poems by Krylov, marked by literary finish and lively thought. He constantly sought for improvement and widened his undertaking, but again betook himself to dramatic composition when Klushkin went abroad. After producing the comedy The Evil of Short Sight and the opera The Americans, both in 1800, and the comedy Ready to Oblige in 1801, he henceforth relinquished journalistic enterprise and became much engrossed with comedies in prose. Little is known of Krylov from 1795 to 1801. That no reference to this period occurs in any of his writings is considered remarkable, for he possessed several gifts, such as painting and great skill on the violin, so that he took part in friendly concerts with the first musicians of the day. Moreover, he enjoyed intimacy with actors, journalists, and contemporary writers. To develop his ability in literature, Krylov learnt Italian and could read freely in that language. He was not strange to the higher society of the capital, which at that time welcomed talented persons. But unfortunately here he acquired a taste for cards, and sought places where he could give way to this weakness unrestrainedly. He would visit some other town in order to meet his companions and indulge in cards, although not avaricious, when young he played passionately. At last he grew sick of such an inactive life. The Tsarina Maria Fedorovna recommended him, he being then thirty-two years of age, to the military governor of Riga, Prince Sergei Fedorovich Galitsyn, who employed him as secretary. Here his love of cards continued. He is said to have won a very large sum of money at play, and to have lost it almost as quickly but his love of literature underwent no diminution, and he circulated in manuscript a witticism under the name of Trumpf, founded on the absurdities perpetrated by Germans in their pronunciation of Russian. Two or three years later, Prince Golitsyn, falling into disgrace and retiring to the province of Saratov, persuaded Krylov to accompany him. It suited the poet's disposition to accept the invitation, for he loved a careless existence, and he was glad to observe the country life of a grandee. Here he lived three years, but despite his friendly relations with the prince, his position was not altogether congenial. Thus Krylov could not avoid slight vexations at the hands of various persons who failed to appreciate his qualities and regarded him as useless. Such time as was not taken up by country amusements, social gatherings, and meals, he devoted to the advantage of his host's children. In 1805, after bidding a cordial farewell to Galitsyn, he set out for St. Petersburg to see his old friends 
and to renew former occupations. Nature had given Krilov an active, acute, and even biting mind. In youth he was carried away by his first thought, whatever it might be, and he was constantly devoted to novelty. This was why, with a widening circle of acquaintance and a reputation among authors, he devoted himself to nothing constantly, and long remained without substantial success in the state service and in the profession of literature. At that time Russian literature flourished in Moscow. Not only Dmitriev, the fabulist, and Karamazin, the distinguished author of A History of Russia, were transforming the nation's language and taste, and attracting a younger generation to their models, but Zhukovsky, the romantic poet and translator of Byron, had already acquired fame. During 1806 Krylov stayed for a time in Moscow, and found pleasure in the society of authors who lived for thought and style. Feeling attracted especially to Dmitriev, and wishing to work at a subject of common interest, he translated La Fontaine's The Oak and the Reed, as well as another fable, and having submitted them was delighted to gain Dmitriev's warmest approval. The senior was so pleased with them that he recommended his future rival to devote himself to this form of poetry. Returning to St. Petersburg, Krylov developed his former passion for the theatre. His three stage pieces, printed in 1807, were probably prepared previously, it may be during his residence with Gulitsyn, the comedies, the fashion shop, and a lesson for daughters, are animated by Krylov's strong disapproval for the prevailing passion among Russians for everything French. His fairy opera, Ilya the Hero, appeared in 1807. In the same year the poet published some new fables and poems entitled A Message on the Use of the Passions and The Guns and the Sails. In 1808, when forty years of age, Krylov recognized his vocation and concentrated all his strength on one form of poetic activity. Zhukovsky inserted several of Krylov's translations from La Fontaine in The Messenger of Europe, and is quoted by Pletnev as saying, La Fontaine, who did not invent a single fable of his own, is honored nevertheless as an original poet. The reason is that while borrowing the ideas of others, La Fontaine did not borrow his charm of style, nor his feelings, nor his truly poetical pictures, nor the simplicity with which he adorned, and so to say made his own that which he borrowed. The story belonged to La Fontaine, and in a fable, in verse, the story is the chief thing. The same critic continues, the imitator in verse can be original, while the translator in prose is a slave. The translator in verse is a rival. An explanation of this remark concerning rivalry is that educated Russians could compare the French and Russian versions, for instance, of The Hermit and the Bear, which Krolov improved materially. Moreover, Zhukovsky was probably thinking of translations in which is preserved little more than the spirit of the original. Happily, the Russian fabulist wrote numerous fables for which he was indebted to no one, and his superiority to his French predecessor in the matter of originality soon became absolute. A close acquaintance formed at this time with A. H. Olenin had a great influence on Krylov's further fate. In Olenin's house, where contemporary Russian writers obtained a hearty welcome, Krylov was recognized more as a fabulist than dramatist. 
and he determined henceforth to devote all his poetical activity to a form of fable full of wisdom and charm the first edition consisting of twenty-three fables was issued in eighteen o eight the book sold rapidly we possess now two hundred and one fables and according to the poet's own account in the edition of eighteen forty three only thirty were borrowed from other writers the others belonging to himself both as to story and treatment during the four years which elapsed between the appearance of the first edition of the fables and Krylov's entrance into an appointment at the imperial public library his attraction towards the stage cooled remarkably the former dramatic writer and unvarying spectator of each new performance did not for ten consecutive years visit the theatre Derjavin, the poet himself appreciated Krylov's new talent and the latter now belonged to a group of the best authors in eighteen o nine a society of lovers of the russian language was formed in the house of the singer filietsa and as most of the members belonged to the russian academy Krylov, in eighteen ten was elected to the academy but his genius did not obtain much assistance from any learned meetings he attended only on formal occasions when the imperial public library was opened in eighteen eleven a h olenin was appointed director and the posts of the secretaries and their assistants were allotted only to persons eminent in literature which rule was observed for several years so that such men as knedich the translator of the iliad and lobanov the translator of racine's iphigenie and phaedra became associated krylov was given the post of assistant to sopikov the librarian in the department of russian books the poet's former acquaintance brikov who had purchased from him the kofienitsa also entered the library service and as he had carefully preserved the manuscript of that precocious production he was able to return it to the eager and now distinguished author apartments were allotted to the assistants in the chief building of the library from the beginning of this epoch krylov began a new life quiet monotonous and free from care and it was continued till he retired after thirty years in the service in eighteen sixteen he succeeded to the appointment hitherto held by sopikov his fame had already become national and in the first year of his service the tsar alexander i conferred upon him as a supplement to his salary a pension of fifteen hundred paper roubles an amount doubled eight years afterwards to the solitary and the easy-going Krylov there was no reason for worry, and he lapsed into poetic inactivity. His appointment and the society of a narrow select circle suiting him thoroughly, he duly discharged his not very onerous duties, but developed no fresh tastes. Nevertheless, he continued to compose from time to time new fables. He kept aloof from general society, perhaps because he did not feel within him sufficient freshness of force to make his way among people successfully. But he was not forgotten, and there were many new editions of his fables, the last, that of 1843, being undertaken and finished by himself. Foreigners, as well as Russians, recognized Krylov's merit. But an especial honor fell to his share in 1831, when Tsar Nicholas I included his bust among New Year's gifts to the Grand Duke, who afterwards became Tsar Alexander II. Three years later the poet's pension from the imperial treasury was again doubled, quote, in consideration of services rendered to Russian literature, end quote. He continued to lead an apparently inactive life. 
though probably his mind was often occupied with the selection of subjects for his fables and with deciding the best form of their treatment. When he was on official duty at the appointed hour, the heavy figure of the famous fabulist appeared among the assistants and slowly proceeded to his official place. These assistants usually were on duty in turn for twenty-four hours. Kriloff never asked for exemption, nor did the good-hearted one, as he was called, ever become irritable like many another during the trying summer weather. He was fond of making himself comfortable on a sofa, and of killing time by reading stupid novels, even more than once. Nevertheless, for the more efficient distribution of the numerous brochures existing in the Russian department, he invented cases in the form of thick books and so conveniently classified ephemeral literature. He had, moreover, to work harder when he was given, as assistant, a poet of an easy-going temperament similar to his own. Domestic life called out his most striking peculiarities. He troubled little, if at all, about cleanliness and order, his establishment being served by a hired woman and a girl, her daughter. Nobody had any idea of wiping dust from the furniture, or from anything else. Of three fair-sized rooms looking on to the street, the middle room was a salon, the one on the left remained unused, and the last, cornering on the Nevsky Prospect, served as the poet's living-room. Here, behind a partition, stood a bed. The poet's seat was on a sofa before a small table in the light part of the room. He had no study or writing-table, and it was hard to find pen, ink, and paper. He begged affably that visitors should be seated, but it was not always possible for them to find a suitably clean place. Kriloff constantly smoked a cigar with a mouthpiece, guarding his eyes from the heat and smoke. The cigar went out continually, and then he rang. The girl, coming out of the kitchen across the salon, brought a thin wax candle without a candlestick, dropped some wax on the table, and fixed the candle in an upright position before the poet. In the middle room, a small part of the windows was almost always open, and Kriloff, by throwing grains of corn on the floor, tamed the pigeons from the great bazaar called the Gostyeny Dvor, so that they were as much at home in his rooms as they were in the street. The resulting condition of the place may be imagined. He rose rather late. Then, after enjoying a cigar and a novel, he passed the time sometimes with his friends, till he set out to dine at the English club, so named for the nationality of the founder. A doze, or cards, followed dinner, and next he returned home, though occasionally he visited Olenin. To strange visitors, whether literary or otherwise, he generally showed great politeness, but he never liked to enter into arguments, as he thought people changed their opinions chiefly according to their experiences. He was even apt to agree in a mechanical way with others, though his sagacity and fineness of perception remained developed to the highest degree. The poet was imprudent in the use of food. For several years, before his last illness, he did not allow himself to eat many dishes, but moderation was seldom his virtue, with the two or three which he allowed himself. It was his custom to pass the summer oftener in towns than in the country, leaving only to spend perhaps a fortnight with the Olenians. The Tsarina Maria Fyodorovna sometimes invited him to Pavlovsk, and the poet on such occasions never forgot to observe the old custom, beloved by the Empress, according to which men powdered the hair. She always acknowledged the attention by a few gracious but jesting words. It was in Pavlovsk, 
that he wrote his charming fable, The Cornflower, which he left as a mark of deep gratitude to his crowned benefactress in one of the albums provided for visitors in the Rose Pavilion. At the Empress's dinner-table, another poet, Kapnist, once whispered to Krylov, "'You are eating enough for ten. Refuse just once, Ivan Andreevich, and I give the Empress a chance of inviting you to partake.' "'Well, but if she does not invite me,' answered Krylov, and continued to heap up his plate. The best indications of the poet's manner of life and customs and inclinations are the stories related of him by his intimate contemporaries. Gnedich relates that to his astonishment he found that Krylov, even at the age of fifty, had quietly studied Greek for two years. Having fulfilled his purpose, the poet let his new pursuit lapse, except occasionally to look at Aesop. Once, when Krylov called on a certain acquaintance, the servant said that his master was asleep. "'No matter,' answered Krylov. "'I will wait.' And, passing into the drawing-room, he lay down on the sofa and slumbered also. Meantime, the gentleman of the house woke, and entering the room, there found, to his astonishment, a complete stranger. "'What can I do for you?' Krylov asked him. "'Allow me to put the same question to you as a reply, because this is my house.' "'How is that? N lives here.' No, I am living here now, but Mr. N. may have lived here before me. After a little further conversation, the owner discovered Krylov's identity, and, being delighted to see such a distinguished man, begged him to stay. By no means, answered Krylov, I shall go, but at any rate we have had a look at each other. And he departed. It is clear that the fabulist was capable of indulging in a certain bluntness and directness of speech, but in spite of his wisdom, as expressed in his fables, he was no cold philosopher. On the contrary, he was swayed by very lively feelings. When N. E. Gnedich, who had been Krylov's intimate friend, left the service and retired on a pension, the poet suddenly began to avoid him, and even passed without speaking. However, after two weeks he came and bowed his head and said, "'Nicholas Ivanovitch, forgive me.' "'For what, Ivan Andreevich?' I am aware of a coldness, but I do not know its cause. Oh, pity me, honored friend. I envied your pension and your good fortune, which you deserve. I abhor the feelings which entered my soul. Gnedich embraced him, and the past was forgotten. Krylov was well aware how greatly his talents were appreciated by his countrymen, but his head was not turned by adulation. He assumed no airs. Once he assured a friend that the first printed praise of any of his works had an immense influence on him. I will say openly that I was given to laziness when young, and I cannot get rid of it now. I wrote a certain trifle, and a printed commendation, having aroused in me a wish for more, I began to exert myself. Let posterity judge if I have done anything. Only, I think, if that publication had not praised him, Ivan Krylov would not have written as he wrote afterwards. Besides originality of ideas and highly developed artistic sense, a conscientious desire to do his best governed Krylov, as in instance by the corrections made in different editions of his fables. He was inclined to display a graceful humility. One day, after dinner, Olenin remarked to him, "'No writer equals you in fame. Your fables have passed through ten editions.' "'That is not surprising,' was the answer. "'My fables are read by children, and the little ones destroy whatever they get hold of.' Yet he knew his worth, and could show a rugged sturdiness, which scarcely befits a courtier. 
Once, when the imperial family was at the Anichkov Palace, and Krylov lived at the public library, the Emperor Nicholas I met the poet on the Nevsky Prospekt. "'Ah, Ivan Andreevich, how do you do? It is long since we saw you,' said the Tsar pleasantly. "'Some little time, Your Majesty,' was the answer, "'and yet we are neighbors. His qualities of determination and persistence, combined with a complete absence of truckling to the great, are exemplified in the following anecdote. The Empress Alexandra Fedorovna once gave Krylov, it is said, a porcelain cup and cover artistically adorned in cobalt, and then, recollecting that it was a gift from the Empress Maria Fedorovna, requested that it might be returned. When Krylov heard the command, he answered, Inform Her Majesty that I will not return the cup, because it has belonged to a dead person. Receiving the message, the Empress exclaimed, What is to be done with the old man? Let him keep it. However, the cup was restored later. Krylov's humor and wit made him much sought after in the middle period of his life. At a gathering a person was mentioned who possessed an income of more than six million rubles. That is enormous, said Krylov. It is as if I had a blanket thirty yards long. But when moved by jealousy, that not in common bane of literary genius, Krylov could excel in roughness. During a literary evening, A.C. Pushkin read his Boris Gurunov. All were in ecstasies, except Krylov, who seemed indifferent. Is it true, Ivan Andreevich, that my Boris does not please you? asked Pushkin. No, it is very well. It pleases me. Only listen, and I will tell you an anecdote. A certain preacher said that each of God's creatures is perfect. A humpback, with a hump in front and behind, came to the pulpit, and pointing to his affliction, asked, Am I then perfect? The preacher, astonished at the deformity, answered, Yes, you are a perfect humpback. So is your drama, Alexander Sergeyevich, most excellent of its sort. An atmosphere of respect and fame did not spoil him, and he remained extremely simple and approachable. One thing which bound him more than ever to the Ilyenians was the death of his brother Leo, whom he had supported in the provinces. Krylov, who was tall and of massive proportions, with a face expressive of good nature and sly humor, was never married, an early attachment not having recommended itself to the young lady's father because of the poet's narrow means. But in his hermit-like old age he took pleasure in teaching little children to read and write, and in hearing their musical lessons. Moreover, he adopted his goddaughter's family, and domiciled them with himself, feeling cheered when the children dined and had tea with him, or when they played in his room. On the seventieth anniversary of his birth various literary men celebrated the jubilee of the Russian fabulist although already more than fifty years had elapsed since the appearance of Philomena. A committee was formed to arrange the festival, which was attended by about three hundred distinguished persons. Before the dinner, Pletnyev and another went to fetch Krylov, who had received as yet but vague news of the event. Alyenin welcomed him at the reception, and the Minister of Public Instruction, after fixing a star upon the poet's breast, led him to a special chamber, where two young grand dukes congratulated him. By all this Krylov was moved to tears. In 1841 he finally retired with a pension of about six hundred pounds a year, and crossed over to live in the Vasily Ostrov. Forward he went out into the world less than ever, and became still heavier, 
though corpulence had long ago overtaken him. But on two occasions he appeared at masked balls in palaces and in costume, recited one of his fables before the imperial party. Unfortunately, his handwriting laterly became illegible, because he loved to copy out his corrected fables. All his life the poet enjoyed fine health, thanks to the simplicity in which he was brought up. Neither his excessive appetite nor his sedentary life had injured him. Even two slight attacks of paralysis hardly affected his mode of existence, and he remained astonishingly calm in the face of death. When a friend, as it were accidentally, spoke of calling in priestly aid, he asked Kriloff if he were a skeptic. The reply was, "'You will judge from this.' Long ago, when paralysis was threatening my hands, I went to a doctor and showed them to him. He asked me the same question that you have asked, and I answered no. The doctor then told me I might become paralyzed, and suggested that I should never eat any meat. You, of course, followed his advice? inquired the friend. Yes, I followed it for two months, and then I thought no more about it. So you can judge whether I am a skeptic. A fire occurred in a neighboring house, and Kriloff's servants bestirred themselves to preserve his most important papers and effects. But contrary to his custom, for conflagrations had always greatly interested and excited him, he paid no attention to it. He ordered tea and lit a cigar, and later leisurely dressed. Then looking at the terrible scene, he said he would not move. Kriloff was especially fond of Russian dishes, his friends often provided them for him. His last illness succeeded to indulgence in a rich dish, and although the doctors could not save him, he preserved his cheerfulness, and even humorously related the following little fable to a bystander. A peasant intended to offer for sale a load of dried fish. His horse was worn out and weak. Nevertheless, the peasant loaded him to the utmost. The neighbor laughed and predicted disaster while the peasant said nothing, but on the road he became convinced that you can overload a horse, even with dried fish. So with me. I thought some woodcock would do me no harm, but just the opposite. I'm done for. He received the last consolations of religion in a grateful and eager spirit, and passed away in his seventy-seventh year. He was buried in the Alexander Nevsky convent beside Gnedich, and not far from Karazmin. The day after his death a thousand persons received a copy of the edition of the fables, which had been in preparation under his own supervision since 1843. On the first page was printed an offering, in memory of Ivan Alendreevich, by his wish. St. Petersburg, 1844, November 9th. This precious gift was chiefly an acknowledgment and expression of gratitude to those taking part in the celebration of his jubilee. Under the highest patronage, a public subscription was opened for erection of a memorial, and a great bronze statue on a granite pedestal was placed in the summer gardens, where the children to whom he has given so much pleasure frequently play. Episodes from his best fables are depicted on bas-relief. There he sits clad in his everyday surtout, which beneath and around him are representatives of the numerous beasts, birds, and insects of his fables. End of a reading from the introduction. Recording by Kevin Davidson, www.blogordie.com.